You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT LP, Davis, California. Time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on 8888. No, 882019. August 8th. August 8th. It's a bright, beautiful, sunny day out there again. 73 degrees in the Sacramento Valley. You got a fair, uh, unlimited visibility. South wind at three miles an hour. 53% humidity dropping down to the 20s to 30s percentish by the mid to late afternoon. Very balmy weather for this week. That's a technical term for pleasant and not it's too not hot. It's not too hot. It is going to be, uh, i got to turn this so I can see it here. There we go. 86 degrees today. That's a high. August high of 86 degrees. August low of 58 degrees tonight. Tomorrow, 85. Tomorrow night, 56. Saturday, 82. Saturday night, 58. I hear people all over the valley jumping up and down going, hooray. Sunday, 92. Sunday night, 60 degrees, and back up to high temperatures on Monday with a high of 97 and then 98 on Tuesday, cooling off a little bit by Wednesday. We have definitely a very strong coastal influence happening right now. Delta breeze coming in. uh, I'm not just talking about a breeze here. We're talking about 15 to 20 miles an hour in some places. Upper low is moving in over the whole region, and we're going to be cooling all the way through Friday as the offshore low starts to push onto the coast, as they like to say at the extended forecast. Monday through Thursday, back to what they would call more normal temperatures for the region. Remember that our average high in August is 92, so being in the mid-80s is a pleasant diversion. It's also fantastic tomato set weather. Is and there any problem with the, the lower temperatures? Is nope. there anything that's coming out There's because no of reason it? to be unhappy about this. All right. <laughs> There's no reason to be concerned about it. Uh, it is actually great for setting tomatoes. I mean, we've got vines with lots of blooms on them. I get concerned this time of year because I got customers coming in. Oh, my vi- my tomatoes are about done, and I'm thinking, no, really, it's they're August. Not. <laughs> they're not done till Halloween. And, but uh, you have a lot of bloom coming right now, and this is the kind of weather in which you will get almost all of those blossoms will convert to fruit, and in seven to ten weeks you will have that fruit. So for those of you listening to this program in other areas. Uh, remember that seven to ten week thing. Two it's, months. Yeah, well, less fortunately, a little less, but yeah, seven, or seven or eight weeks for the faster ripening mm-hmm. types, a little longer, closer to two months. So we've got that here. If it's setting in the first week of August, we're picking those in uh, late September to early October. Classic pattern here. Anyone who moves to the Sacramento Valley, we're warm and dry. 
into the middle part of October for sure. I mean, I mm-hmm. just can't even remember cold, cold weather and rainy weather coming in any time before the later part of the month. So if you do have vines that are nice and vigorous, keep deep watering them and you'll get a whole second perhaps in your case, third harvest off of them this year. Mm-hmm. And in my case, at least, that's the main thing I'm processing, you know, dealing with those and canning and freezing and all that kind of stuff. Now, I have a question for you because I know on tomatoes we have determinate and indeterminate. Yep. And determinate an means they question, grow until, yeah. they, uh, uh, un- until they're done getting bigger and then they stop growing bigger. Um, do the determinates continue to set fruit? Even no. no, and that's important. They, if you're driving around here and, and you've been done enjoying the sunflowers, you notice the fields and fields of tomatoes they're coloring up they're going to be close to harvest the first trucks of them causing those bright red eyebrows on the freeway off ramps everywhere mm-hmm. uh, are already on on the road and they're done you know when, once a t- determinate tomato has fruited it is done not and, all, and they all usually come at the same time. Pretty much, yeah. So that, that's, and that's why they choose those for yep. the, the harvest. And home gardeners may. Roma is a well-known determinate tomato. You can grow it, and it's easy to grow. It doesn't need staking. Determinate also means shorter, more compact plants. I've often planted Roma tomatoes and not staked them or caged them at all. Just let them look like a, a bedding plant tomato, and the plant gets like two by two and produces 15 or 20 good-sized fruit pretty much all at once, and you process those. Not all dwarf tomatoes by any stretch, are determinate. So this is an important change from the breeders in about the last, oh, decade or so. The determinate tomatoes have always been around. Ace, Roma, well-known varieties that grow to a certain size, set a certain amount of fruit, pretty much done. I mean, this is a, there's a little variability. They might mm-hmm. continue to fruit a little bit, but pretty much once they've fruited, they're done. There's this new series, oh, 15, 20 years ago, called the Dwarf Indeterminates. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, at least they named it properly. Yes. If you can find that on the tag or find it on a chart somewhere, you can look for the Husky series and some of the others. And some of these new really dwarf tomatoes that they're selling for containers, for hanging baskets, for planter boxes and things like that, Tumbling Tom, I mean, there's a bunch of them now, that are have very short internode distances. That mm-hmm. is to say, the distance between leaves on the stem is maybe part of an inch compared to an inch or two. You know, mm-hmm. So they grow about a quarter to... So their stem is shorter even yep. though they may have the same amount of, of leaf. Right, and so they flower and they fruit continuously right on through the season. So if you buy the Husky series, yeah, they're small, small plants, uh, but they continue to fruit right till the end of the season. So there's a tomato for every situation. Mm-hmm. If you want to grow a tomato in a patio planter and have a few fruit on it, there's a variety that'll do that for you. And hey. so if you do plant tomatoes next year, I encourage you to keep the the name Save so it. that you can look it up and see what that particular kind is going to do for you. I, I suggest you start a database on your computer and track how they did each year because they <laughs> Don vary. does that. <laughs> well, I do, and it's important. I mean, I would try to remember from year to year, and you know, I'm planning 25 or 30 varieties to test them each year, test the newest ones from, say, Wild Boar Farm the new hybrids that are being touted, see if the old ones that did well in the past continue to do well and so forth. Or or if one completely flopped one year, I think, you know, let's not judge it by one season. Let's try it again and keep notes. And uh, that's Mm -hmm. as I age... I find it important to write these things down. What's happening at the UC Davis Arboretum? Well, not much because it's summer. So we'll just go ahead and tell you all about the Arboretum. And in July of 2011, all of UC Davis's land-based operational units, 
The Arboretum, the Grounds and Landscape Services, and the Poudre Creek Riparian Reserve merged to create the UC Davis Arboretum and Public Garden. And now it spans the campus's 5,300-plus wow. acres and includes the historic Arboretum, a 100-plus acre campus and regional amenity, which is comprised of demonstration gardens and scientific collections, as well as the Poudre Creek Riparian Reserve. That itself is a rare stream and grassland ecosystem managed for teaching research, wildlife, and habitat protection. The purpose of the Arboretum is to inspire human potential to help people and environments thrive. The campus grounds are stewarded as a resource for encouraging students and community members and visitors to Davis like you to become environmental leaders for the public to learn about climate change and the importance of regionally appropriate landscaping for visitors to informally explore the academic richness of UC Davis and much more. That's the UC Davis Arboretum, which is the whole campus. Open th- 24 hours a day, seven days a week for your pleasure. I think I better have a show with those folks on talking about all the changes that they've done. And by the way, Don says it's open. Uh, it, it isn't quite all open. There are areas right. that are fenced off because they're research areas. Yep. So don't go climbing any fences. <laughs> but Hopefully just, there's a sign. That tells yeah, you. wander around. And most of the places that you would want to go to do have paved paths to them. Oh, yeah, they're, exa- they're handicap now, accessible once, completely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Once you get to the Oak Grove, however, it is large enough that you can just get off the the paved path and go out there on the lawn and have a picnic and throw frisbees for your children for your children and just have a really good time yeah okay. oh they do ask that you not bring dogs off leash yeah that's an unfortunate change yeah uh, i okay. should mention so, it's oh, hold on it's august it is and one thing we do in august is we plan and we start planting the cool season vegetables but it's august but it's august and so we will talk more <laughs> about this as we get towards the cool season but i do have we have local listeners and mm-hmm. uh, they are folks in the sacramento valley and the east bay and also interior southern california and of course folks along the coastal areas are planting stuff year round so they're beginning to start asking about those cool season mm, vegetables. Mm-hmm. And yes, according to the calendar, which you'll find on my business website, redwoodbarn.com, look for planting guides or various other calendars there. It is a very good time to start planting some of the important coal crops. Those are the cabbage relatives that need a long season to get going, uh, particularly Brussels sprouts. People want to do them if you're going to grow them, if you enjoy those. Really, July is when you start them from seed. August is okay. Little seedlings can be found at garden centers that are willing to bring them in. I have some, for example. Um, And it takes that long for that plant to get going, make a nice big rosette of foliage so that it can sustain the bloom spike that comes up of which you're eating the little side shoots. It takes about 90 days for them to really get going. So if you plant them too late, if you plant them in September, October, November, you get the thing that looks like a cabbage, but it doesn't make the Brussels sprouts. So if you're really into Brussels sprouts, and who isn't really, if you're really into Brussels sprouts, get them going soon because they really need a good long head start. Those are probably the ones that I really think you need to think about quick or else the season is, the window is going to pass. And when he says coal crops, he doesn't mean C-O-L-D, right. he means coal. C-O-L-E. And I think every time you say that, we're going to have to spell it because over the radio, it really sounds like coal. I'll say cabbage crops. That's then a good. It, then it sounds that's like good. cabbage. But then that's, oh, brassica. That's where it comes from. Is oh, the, wait, is brassica the same thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We can talk about the brassicas. There you go. Yeah. What now, are we you, harvesting right now? According to the August calendar, which I have in my hand, kumquats, Meyer lemons, apples, figs, grapes, nectarines, peaches, pears, plums, pluots, almonds, basil, peen, beans, cucumbers, corn, okra, squash, tomatoes, eggplant, melon, and peppers. Yeah. 
It's that's a all, that's big all true. month for harvest. Yeah, August is a very busy time yeah. in the garden here. And a lot of those uh, fruit trees you mentioned are actually a yeah, heavy production this year. Great yields on most of the fruit trees. 130 pounds off my little <laughs> plum tree. No, I'm serious. But we're going to get to that. The we're harvester gonna... came and the, the, they came. They had it, brought a team out. And yep. when they were done, they measured the weight and gave me a receipt for 130 pounds of plums. We're going to talk about Ooh. how to keep your plum tree smaller when we get to that email yes, question. Yes, I will. Okay, go uh, ahead. Do you want to start with a sensitive plant? Sure. Okay, sure. so here's the question that Don got. What makes a sensitive plant close up? So now, a sensitive plant has leaves that the leaves fold into each other. It's not that the whole plant wilts. It's just the leaves, the ha- two halves of the leaves are folding in towards each other. Okay, why does it do that? Sensitive plant is mimosa, mimosa pudica. Mimosa is a common name for silk tree, which interestingly looks very much like a giant sensitive plant. Mm-hmm. Here's another interesting fact. It folds its leaves up at night. It does. If you hadn't noticed that. They're in that branch of the pea family. There are certain groups in the pea family that have those puffball type flowers. And like you look Bauhinia. At, you look at the flower, uh, well. They mm, fold up. Uh, okay. No, not in the same branch of the pea family, but oh, yes. Oh, never mind. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, the mimosa and the sensitive plant are closely related. And uh, the word of the day is? Is what? Go ahead. Today's vocabulary word is? You mean I have to say this? Okay. Thigmonesty. That sounds good. I would have said thigmonasty, but I think thigmonasty. T-H-I-G-M-O-N-A-S-T-Y. It ends in nasty. Thigmotropism is the movement movement of the plant towards, uh, let's see, what is that? I can't remember now. Anyway, thigmonasty applies to Venus flytraps. And uh-huh. sensitive plants and various pollination mechanisms of certain flowers, like orchids that have a trigger mechanism that shoot the pollen onto the pollinator. So this is a folding it's thing. A, it's a, that's the condition. Now, it's caused by the okay. presence of these dense groups of cells that are at the base of the leaves. And in the case of the prayer plant, uh, excuse me, of the uh, sensitive plant, they're also at the base of each little leaflet on that mm-hmm. divided leaf. case of prayer plant, which a lot of people know as a house plant, it's just at the base of the leaf. Um, money plants that do this close up at night. Mm-hmm. They're in just the day chain, day, you know, the, sun, the light goes, the ends, the day ends, and the sugars and the waters in the plant move in such a way that the, this little clump of cells responds, uh, loses turgor, and the, everything past that point just folds down. It's probably a protective mechanism of some sort. Not really sure why they do this, but they close up at night. But in some cases, like the sensitive plant and the Venus flytrap, they're triggered by contact or by high temperatures in the case of the sensitive plant. So that's a clue. Maybe so maybe that's what is, it comes from, a touch. Yeah. Does it have to be, a th- can it be just a wiggle? Like mm-hmm. if you shook the table, you, you would can, that be enough? Yes, or you can touch it, and it's a really uh-huh. fun thing for kids to do. Uh, you could, the contact literally causes an electrical reaction in the plant that moves down the leaves, causes a rapid movement of water out of that group of cells, and they collapse. So the plant goes... It's Whoop. fast. It, it's very rapid. And then the recovery from it takes about 20 minutes. So the return of the turgor to those cells takes about 20 minutes. Um, you can grow sensitive plants. They're incredibly easy. They're basically a roadside weed in Mexico and Guatemala. And, They're house uh, plants, aren't they? Well, very short-lived. When I worked in the botany department, we would grow them for the anatomy classes to show them these basal cells on the, on the leaf so they could take them and dissect them. We would just have to keep sort of a constant series of crops going because they'd last about three months and then they were just so overgrown and leggy that the plants mm-hmm. didn't really make very attractive house plants. But you can find them on seed racks or you can buy the seeds. Very easy to germinate. 
follow the directions on the label because I think you want to soak the Do seed something. to get it faster. But it's really quite easy. And you can keep poking up as often as you like. Unlike the Venus flytrap where it only closes up a certain number of times and then you've just starved the plant because you've fooled it. It doesn't get any food from what you're doing. The sensitive plant, it appears to just be a protective mechanism of some sort. So you're not hurting the plant by doing it. So if you've got a kid that wants to poke at plants, probably better to use a sensitive plant than a Venus flytrap. But it is a fascinating thing to watch. Curiously, various um, and things like ketamine... Lidocaine and ether prevent the action in both sensitive plants and Venus flytraps. I don't know why. Are those medicines? And don't try those at home, yes. Huh. <laughs> okay. Well, you get some very strange questions. That's a fun I one. like this question from a kid who walked in and said, Do bushes get old? Yep. Yes, they do. Does it matter? Well, sometimes it does matter in some cases. So it was funny because not long after that, I was talking to someone about a problem they were having with a hedge. And I've consulted on this kind of thing where a hedge has gotten old. And because of the way it's been pruned, sheared and clipped over and over and over again. One case, it was a 100-year-old hedge in Sacramento. that had been clipped constantly to keep it, you know, three by three, a boxwood hedge. What they'd gotten down to was just this that one-inch thick layer of foliage on the outer shell of the plant. And the interior was all bare. And mm-hmm. it was beginning, and now a couple of the plants were beginning to die out. Now, this is a historic hedge, and, you know, matching that exact boxwood would be challenging because there have been some different varieties and species used over the years. So the, the conversation there was, this hedge is getting old. Can we continue to manage this? Well, yes, you can, but you need to get some sunlight down on the inside. So I had them go out and get very narrow pruners, kind of thing that bonsai growers will use, or nowadays people who are clipping the flowers of their cannabis. These are these narrow needle-nosed pruners, and they'll go in and they'll clip out some branches here and there just to get some sunlight on the interior to try and get some buds to break down there because it has in fact as the kid was asking gotten old and with age they can start to die out if there's no more growth buds down there and you keep shearing off the growth on top eventually the balance between new growth and energy storage will fizzle out and the plant will die then you've got a problem in your hedge i have i have a physiology question Mm -hmm. plant physiology question when a plant grows, um, so here's, here's a stalk and there's a, a, a twig and there's a little branch. Okay. Is when that branch grows, are all of the potential places where a bud could be in existence at the time of its creation? Or does no. it make more as it goes? Can all, it replace all of, all of the above and it varies by plant. And this is why some plants are better used for hedges than others. For example, if you clip a juniper and uh, it's, they're clipped into hedges, you see it done, it's a horrible thing to do to a juniper, but you see it done. Mm -hmm. Over time, the wood covers over the buds that are down at the base that were present over, you know, years ago. And they become, first they become vestigial and probably can't even grow. And eventually they just die out. Mm -hmm. So if you have a a juniper hedge or ground cover and you want to get rid of it, simple, cut it to the ground. I almost guarantee it will not re-sprout. That'll Mm -hmm. just, that'll be the end of it. If you didn't intend for that to happen, I'm sorry, (laughs) because that's what's likely to happen. If you've ever done... the wood is covering over, the bark bark is covering over the... And and, does that happen with your, the hundred-year-old hedge? Yes, at some point it does. And so the question is, are there any growth buds down in there that can still grow? Now, if you've ever cut down a privet, mm-hmm. that doesn't kill them, does it? No, no they no, come back they, from anything. They come back pretty much from anything, yes. Yeah. Although consistently cutting it down and not, you know, as you do it over time, yes, you can eventually 
starve it out so that there's no foliage to re, you know to restore the root system. Tree of heaven, things like that. You cut them to the ground, they'll re-sprout. Things that are used for hedges typically are chosen partly because they can be pruned hard and they'll re-sprout. There are buds that will break and, and grow and fill in. But over time, those could die out. And a 100-year-old hedge, well, that's a good question at that point. I do believe, in fact, I think I talked to them a couple of years later and that had worked restoring the hedge of, you know, just thinning it out to get sunlight down onto the interior mm-hmm. in the hopes that any remaining growth buds down there would sprout and grow, then you're good. It's back. It's going to fill in. You can start working with that again. So, yes, so, they do get old, but uh, but there, it varies from plant to plant as to how much impact that has on the, on the actual usefulness in the landscape, shall we say. Okay. Well, I want to take that what you've just said, and I want to to transfer it to my plum tree. Okay. Can we do that now? No, we'll move on to that because that question is in your email there. So oh, okay. we'll get, we'll get there. Get I there. guarantee we'll try to anyway. Okay, we have a very large purple leaf tree in the backyard. Yep. We installed a new patio to enjoy the shade. <laughs> now there are purple squishy fruit all over the new patio. What is this tree? Can anything be done to prevent it fruiting? What's the easiest way to clean off fruit from the patio? Okay, here's a suggestion. If you have a purple leaf tree in your backyard, before you have the concrete poured or the deck built, get the tree identified because there are purple-leafed plums, there are purple-leafed maples, there are purple-leafed smoke bushes. Some of those, like the maples, only have these dry seed pods, samaras, mm-hmm. which wouldn't be an issue. Some of them, like the smoke bush, have hardly any seeds you'll notice at all. The plum, mm-hmm. the cherry plum is technically what it really is. Uh, yeah, they're going to fruit. And uh, there are fruitless types that mm-hmm. are out there, but they are not the but ones you that didn't were... didn't buy one. They were the ones that were planted years ago. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the fruit was just falling into the lawn or something before, and this, this person didn't notice it. First of all, backing up, yes, there are some red leaf plums that don't fruit. Mm-hmm. Purple pony has been observed since 1962, according to one reference, and has not fruited. So that's a pretty good run so far without any fruit. And Prunus... <laughs> Prunus how, how, how is Purple Pony making more of itself if it's not fruiting? By uh, cloning it. It's, by, by cuttings. By, cut, grafting, by cuttings, It's yeah. usually a grafted tree. So that's an important question. If this was grown from seed, yeah, it's not, it's not reliable. Prunus cystina is a red leaf bush plum, which is very pretty, and uh, is sometimes trained by growers up into a tree to be a miniature tree because it's basically a six-foot or so shrub that can be used as a tree. And that's just a little tiny fruit that uh, barely even makes it to the ground. So nothing And, to and worry they about dry that. out fast, yeah. even if they yeah. do make it to yeah, the ground. it's hardly an issue. However, the purple leaf plums that were widely planted in the 60s and 70s, like Thundercloud and Newport and some of the other varieties that were very, very popular back then, just as California suburbs were exploding and expanding everywhere, extremely popular landscaper and developer tree, they fruited heavily. Mm-hmm. They're technically a cherry plum, if you will. They're usually variants of Prunus sericifera, which we've now talked about on three different shows. Mm-hmm. Once as a rootstock that came up in, on someone's apricot or whatever. Once as a seedling, you and I, I think, both have near us. And if you've tasted the fruit, yeah, you can eat it. You can make wine from it. You can make jam from it if you're so inclined. It's but not all that tasty. It's not that great. It's a little tannic, and there's a lot of it. And so know the sprays that are used for other trees, like the uh, one used to prevent fruit on olives, like Florel. I don't think it's going to work on a mm-hmm. plum. You could try it. I think it's labeled for it. I think the efficacy will be limited. Just because cut the tree down. You need to, well, that's a challenge. They put the patio in around it. You need to, they need to spray. If you're going to use those sprays, you got to get the spray on every flower to prevent that flower from forming a fruit. It's about a 10 to 14 day bloom period. And I guarantee, you know, you're not going to get it on every flower. So you can use those and reduce the fruit load. But even a 50% reduction on some of these isn't going to feel like much reduction. To answer the important question, 
What is the easiest way to clean off the fruit from the patio? A pressure washer will do a great job of it. You can buy that at any auto parts place, or you can buy it online or places that sell those kinds of tools, and they work great. So Every house should have a pressure how, washer. Uh, how long a fruit drop time is there? In other words, like like mm. my fruit all came in at once, yeah, and so be... it was like like three weeks. Yeah, that no, this is more some... like six to eight weeks. And oh, it's, and it's, it's red, one of those long ones. Red, pulpy, and messy. Yeah. Yeah. No, unfortunately, the, the patio's in now. Because I said in the long run, your best solution is getting rid of the tree and planting something new, but they kind of designed it into the patio. Well, but you so could get rid of the tree and instead put a, a barrel with flowers in it or, that, or, or yeah. put in a, a, I know, you could buy a beautiful statue. The reason they chose to put the deck under the tree was for the shade. And so in the long run, my suggestion tents. was to, tents, take, to yeah. take, some pictures, take some pictures of your yard. <laughs> By the way, this is a common conversation. Take some pictures of the yard. See if there's a place 15 or 20 feet away where you can now plant another tree that mm-hmm. will not be impinged on in its growth by the existing tree. Mm-hmm. Is there a place where you can get another young tree going, give it three, four, five years of growth, then take out this one so it's not such a drastic change? Yeah. And I can tell you, I've done that drastic change. We had to take out a walnut that That's was a giant strategically tree. shading the southwest side of our house. It mm-hmm. shaded the kitchen window at four in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. We had to take it out. It was it had a, a disease that was causing it to die. And I would declare it was a 20-degree temperature difference oh, yeah. once it came out. And I've got a nice new tree replacing it. You know, in my lifetime, I will see shade from that tree. But it's better. It can be done. People mm-hmm. people need to look up more. Look at the sky and the canopy of trees around. Mm-hmm. Is there open space where a tree could grow up, a pistache or something, get up there and get some height to it for a couple of years? And then it won't be so painful when you have to take that plum out. Or take out the tree and put an, a tent over it temporarily. Yeah, an awning of some sort. Okay, let's uh, let's go to the Haidon page over. I don't know where it is. It's over there. These are emails that we got that I think are pertinent. That's not Haidon. There this you go. This is Haidon. Haidon, I'd like to purchase some asparagus crowns from you this year and have a few questions about the process. When will they be available? What varieties are available? Also, we're planning on building a planter box for the asparagus. Do you have any suggestions on soil depth, soil composition, etc.? Thank you so much. So asparagus is incredibly easy to grow, probably almost everywhere that anyone's listening to mm-hmm. us. I don't know if it grows in the tropics. So if you're listening in one of the tropical countries, um, I don't know whether it grows for Check you. Check your I local. I don't know whether it will go <laughs> dormant properly for you in you know Indonesia, but I'm sure there's some place there you can grow it. It's, it grows, I'm told that in Wisconsin and places like that, it just reseeds everywhere and actually becomes it's invasive. A, it's, it's the fence uh, crop. Right. <laughs> no, seriously, yeah. wherever there's a fence around a cow pasture yeah, or I wonder whatever, why. <laughs> um, the, you, you don't mow under the fence. Right? The fence is you know, there. Yep. And so every spring, here come the asparagus, and you go out and harvest that, and that's your asparagus crop. Well, that's perfect because the cow pasture fertilizes it, and you, know, they get, uh, you get the nitrogen. The cows and, don't and, go and <laughs> lean on the fence when they do the, <laughs> so, their stuff. Somewhere nearby. All right, so crowns for asparagus in the Sacramento Valley and most parts of California arrive at nurseries in November, usually late in the month, kind of like the bare root season, except they don't come from the same bare root fruit tree growers. They come mostly from the people that sell berries and things like mm-hmm. that. So around Thanksgiving, you can usually find asparagus crowns. Really, there's only been two or three varieties of asparagus that have ever caught on in a big way. There's Mary Washington, which is an heirloom variety now from the 19th century. It was selected for disease resistance. It's grown from seed. Uh, there's UC-157. Guess where that one came from? Davis? Actually, Riverside. UC oh. Riverside. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was also selected for disease resistance and a, quote, lower percentage of females because, well, we'll get to that in a minute. 
And then there's this one called Sweet Purple, which is really cool, actually. It's a purple asparagus, and they tend to be stout, and they're tender and very sweet, but it's not as high-yielding as the others. It's also newer, isn't it? Yeah, 30, 40 years, whereas the others have been around for longer and longer. Uh, By the way, it turns green when you cook it. They all do great here, and they'll all do great probably anywhere asparagus grows. Mary Washington is everywhere, and the other ones are probably any any nursery that sells a lot of asparagus probably has them. You put a, it looks like a little octopus when you buy it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the strangest looking bare root things we sell. It's got this crown, and you can see where the spear things are ready to go up and the roots trailing down, so it's pretty easy to figure out. So you put out. the tentacles down. You put the tentacles down. We say yeah. that a lot, by the way, in the late fall. Tentacles down, bury it under at least a couple inches of soil, loose soil, and keep adding soil or something over the top. The old rule is to cover them with about six inches of of something, compost soil, so that when you were cutting the spears in future years, you're not cutting down into the crown. I will tell you that personally, my longest lived plants, which are now well over 30 years old, are the ones that we carefully made furrows, took the soil and piled it up into the rows between the furrows and planted on the rows so that water in wet winters would drain off in the furrows and drain away. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ones that were down level, when it was really wet and rainy, would tend to rot out. So mm-hmm. they do need to have water drain away from the crown somehow. Which is why the fence is perfect. It is, actually. And also the raised beds that she's thinking of doing with mm-hmm. the planter box she's talking about. Now, these the don't ideal. have ta- have long roots. They're not like tomatoes where they're going to go four feet down in the ground well, for the roots. They probably go out more than down. They're mm-hmm. tough roots. They're if tough. you ever try to dig one out, boy, they're, they're as, if you ever try to dig out the ornamental asparagus, they're just as tough. And mm-hmm. uh, the asparagus roots are dense and nothing else is going to grow in that box once you have a solid bed of asparagus. They do like lots of moisture just for yield. I mean, they're incredibly drought In the tolerant. spring. Well, even you know, even in summer to keep the roots healthy. Yeah. But, you know, they're tough plants. They, they, mm-hmm. they will take drought. People found in the drought, they yielded less, but it was still fine. So it's better to mulch them and make sure the mulch has some kind of nitrogen in it. They don't even have to worry about feeding them. Mm-hmm. Old books will always tell you, get some well-rotted manure. We all have that around, right? Uh, mulch with something is what it comes down to, something that has nitrogen. And here's the main thing about them. They're bigger plants than people think. Mm-hmm. They're very, very, very pretty. They're mm-hmm. very ferny looking. And the ferny fronds, which are really spears, shoots that, just like the ornamental ones, come out and grow four, five, six feet mm-hmm. and sprawl. And so put them someplace back where you can pull that against the fence if you're limited for space or stake it up somehow. If you have room, just let them go. They're actually very, very attractive. And the fall color is even nice on them. I have lots of pictures of the fall color on my asparagus so they are deciduous so so in case you're a little confused as how this works in the spring after after a nice cold winter when the 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 things are dormant back in michigan and then uh, you know the shoot comes out and when you see the tip of the of the shoot then you know that that's a little asparagus shoot that you can cut and if you continue to cut it it will continue to throw up new stalks if you don't cut it those stalks that it's thrown up mm-hmm. are going to take over, and they're not going <laughs> to throw up new stalks. They're just going to get tall and, mm-hmm. and make seeds if they're the female plants or whatever. Um, so you're harvesting always the new shoots yep. in the spring. The first time that you plant this stuff, you're not going to have very much. I would encourage you not to harvest anything the first two years just because you want the plants to get really well established. We don't usually harvest till the shoots that are coming up are uh, finger thick. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like second or third year typically. Here in other areas, maybe it takes longer. I don't mm-hmm. know. But yeah, a couple of years to really build up the strength of the root system. By the way, here in the valley, 
watch carefully for shoots. I've had them come up as early as February when mm -hmm. you're not even thinking about it. <laughs> and you go out there and go, oh, it's three feet tall. Well, that's too tall to eat because they get tough at that point. So start picking regularly and store them in the mm -hmm. refrigerator until you have enough to cook. Pick them. They always tell you to use a sharp knife, and I think that's important. Rather than trying to pull them off or snap them off, you want to cut them clean down just underground. Mm -hmm. You so can use scissors, scissors, but you have to get under there. Like that. And then you harvest for a few weeks, and then you let them grow out to rebuild the strength of the roots. And I would say about six to 12 plants is enough for most people, unless you just really, really, really love asparagus. Even still, the season is going to be narrow. We don't, mm -hmm. we don't pick them all summer. We pick them for, they're a classic spring vegetable. That's and right. spring here means February in the case of asparagus. It's one of the first things that you can yeah. eat because what you're eating is just the emerging stem. Now, Everything else, if you're eating the fruit, you have to wait for it to grow. Now, I mentioned I had some that were 30-plus years old. They're very long-lived plants. They'll always tell you to rogue out the female plants, dig Why? them out. Well, because, okay, here's the theory. Because they flower and they fruit, and you'll see the berries. You've seen They're them. They're beautiful. And the birds like them, and they scatter, and they reseed. And over time, the seedlings are less lower quality than the strain you planted so they will quote degrade the stand um i don't know how I many don't i don't know how so. many decades that would take i personally don't have the patience to dig out female asparagus plants this is some sort of horticultural misogyny <laughs> but uh, i just just leave them and don't worry too much about them but that is a that is a common advice and if it's planting more asparagus plants from seeds it that doesn't harm the plant well, that exists there the crown no. that exists continues to grow the idea is that they they would be less productive i guess i, I think some areas they're probably the issue would be that they're invasive and uh, maybe removing the female it's plants would reduce the... just along the row of the fence, man. <laughs> I mean, I've that's heard. the only place you find them. It doesn't happen if here. If they're so. out in the field, the cows will eat them. Back to the cow fields, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the annual... Well, yeah. <laughs> the old books will tell you to mulch with manure. I think that's taken care of where you're yeah. coming from. So. All right, next page there. I, okay. I, I look for the cultivated, you know, the selected form UC-157. If you can find it, it's more productive and bigger spears, but all of them do well. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Okay. Okay. Jean writes, um, hi, Don. My lawn has looked pathetic for a while. I contacted a sprinkler company thinking that I might need an additional sprinkler or two and was assured that just changing the sprinkler heads alone would cure the problem. Mm. It did not. Mm -mm. The person who cuts my lawn fertilized and suggested I up the watering time, which I did. It looks progressively worse by the day. My husband in the past treated it for fungus, but I have no idea if that would help. Can you recommend someone who specializes in lawn care? Well, I can do that, and we do that kind of thing privately regularly. I knew her husband, and he passed away a couple of years ago, and it's a very, very, very large lawn. And here's the thing. It was mostly bluegrass. Significant oh. percentage of the lawn was Kentucky bluegrass, which he liked. Was, this has been goes way back to the... 70s it was probably planted originally and back in those days we opened in 1981 most lawns i looked at when mm -hmm. i would go out to assess why my lawn is dying problems which i had to do on site because we didn't have the internet or cell phones or things like that there are brown spots in my lawn don can you come by and look at it well nowadays i just say take a picture bring it in we'll look at it together but in those days, the overwhelming majority of lawns were ryegrass, bluegrass blends. They were a combination of perennial ryegrass and Kentucky bluegrass, which is the standard of appearance for a lawn. I mean, you compare any new variety to how that looks because of the color of the bluegrass, the deep green color that both the bluegrass and the ryegrass have, the fact that you can cut them fairly short and have a, still have a good walking surface and good density to it. So that's the standard of lawns at that time. Over the years... I practically never see 
a rye blue blend anymore. I almost always see fescue wands, mm-hmm. either the coarser bladed fescues, such as people have, uh, you know, you see in parks, which make great lawns. If you have a big area, you want to throw the frisbee, you have it for kids and dogs, those are the tougher grasses. Mm-hmm. Or the or fine. Ca- or cow meadows. Or cow meadows, right? If you're going to be growing asparagus, <laughs> full circle now. I'm uh, sorry. Or, or the finer fescues, which have become really popular for sort of a meadowy look, the mm-hmm. creeping red fescue for the shade and the chewings and hard fescues and so on. These are increasingly used uh, where people want a more informal lower water lawn. And do so, they have less problems with this fungus? Way less. Uh-huh. I used to sell, back in the bad old days, cases of fungicide every summer because of bluegrass lawns. And I do remember her husband and others coming in buying, you know, whatever it was, Ben mill, Bailaton, whatever was being used those days, spraying all the time to keep their lawn from getting fusarium blight, which is the disease that causes the rapid die-out of and the bluegrass. And it's normal bluegrass. here. It's, in, it's normal. It's, 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 a, it's everywhere. It's why we don't recommend bluegrass uh-huh. in the valley. Now, if you, have a, if you have sod put in and a company comes out and does it, it's probably going to be a fescue blend. Overwhelmingly, that's what they use. But it may have about 10% bluegrass in it. Don't worry about that. They use that for a reason. It gives it good color. It knits together well. I know that sounds weird, but it makes, it makes a, roots fast. It makes a better sod, and uh-huh. uh, and it looks really nice. And then you put it in, and you do all the watering and all the mowing. And second, third year, I'm very accustomed to people coming and saying, Look, I've got little, little areas of my lawn dying out. I say, yep, that's some bluegrass right on schedule, dying out from fusarium blight. Don't worry about it. When it's done, rake it out, seed in some more fescue in the fall. You'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So you can still find fungicides for fusarium on, fusarium on your bluegrass lawn. If you're listening in the east, you'll have different things and in California. However, my suggestion would be rather than spraying a couple thousand square feet of fungicide every year, multiple times, your best bet in the long run is obviously to seed in, overseed with a better grass seed, something that doesn't get fusarium. You know, and that's all the fescues that we just talked about. So. I think I think she might have trouble doing that. Mm-hmm. I think you might have to hire someone younger to, sure. if, if it's that big a lawn, if that's going to be a lot of work. It isn't hard, but it, there are several steps involved. And we, as we get closer to the rainy season, we'll go through this in more detail. But basically, the key principle is that the seed needs to go on soil, mm-hmm. not on grass, not on thatch. And so um, if you, I, and, I said, and I suggested to her and others, uh, take a picture, get close in. Now that now we can take these incredible pictures with your cell phone, yeah. bend down, take a picture of what your turf looks like in good areas and bad areas. So I can see the thatch, you know, get an idea. Or mm-hmm. I can see whether you can see soil. Mm-hmm. And if you can't see soil, you're going to probably need to take a rake and spend a considerable amount of effort raking off the stuff manually, which can be good exercise, or go out and rent a dethatcher, or have your lawn guy do that or whatever, you know, get, get someone to go through it and get it down to bare soil and then overseed it. Personally, I like to seed when it's about to rain. Okay, so, so you've, you've, you've we're a couple prompted, months away from that. So prompted got... two more questions for okay. me. Um, I have seen, not recently, but I have seen a vacuum cleaner lawnmower so that yep. when it when it mows, it keeps the clippings rather than leaving them in the lawn. Yep. Will that reduce fatch, and is that a good thing or a bad thing to do? Actually, I prefer mulching mowers because we know that if the mulching mower is the opposite of that, it grinds it it it, it kind of grinds up the clippings and we. Re- 
places them down on the lawn and then they go back into the soil and they enrich the soil. So okay. the kind you're talking about, take it away, which means you're taking some nitrogen off every time you mow your lawn, which uh -huh. means you have to feed more often. So that gets you back to the usual cycle of feed so that it grows, so that you mow, so you have to feed. So, you know, so in other words, it's better to use a mulching mower than the kind you're describing. Okay, so but, it, but in either event, thatch is usually more specific to the type of grass rather than to the practices. Uh -huh. And thatch is a big problem on Bermuda grass, for example. They have to dethatch Bermuda grass lawns very regularly. What is thatch? It's the old dead stuff of stems and leaves that just builds up over time on the ground. St. Augustine grass, you get three inches of it. Bermuda grass, an inch or two. Uh -huh. And it's, it's, it, uh, water has trouble penetrating. It harbors pests and diseases, or so they say. And so it becomes a problem. And so dethatching a lawn is a fairly standard thing to do. If you're going to, if you're going to, if you're going to reseed, well, that's not an option here. If okay. you're going to reseed, uh, dethatching may be necessary, maybe not. That's why a good picture of the density of your turf will tell me whether that's going to be necessary. And any of you out there listening, if you're curious about this, go out and take those pictures, send them to davisgardenshow at gmail.com, and I, we can look at them. And, We'll talk about how thatch builds up and how to deal with it. We've got plenty of time on this because it's yeah. August. August, your lawn is going to look rough almost no matter what. Mm -hmm. September is going to still look rough here in the valley because it's still like August and September pretty much in the Sacramento Valley. It hasn't so, gotten cool and hasn't nope, rained. It's not fall here in September. And October is when you really can get going on this kind of thing. So mm -hmm. keep the water on the lawn, water correctly. Feeding it was fine but didn't solve the problem. New sprinkler heads were probably good because, you know, getting newer, more, more low-gallonage heads that will water more efficiently probably wasn't a bad expense. Too bad it was presented as if it was going to solve the problem, but there you go. And so I'd measure and see what the output is, make sure you're watering correctly, make sure you don't have drought stress making things even worse. And then we can talk about, do you have sun or shade? Do you have a mix of sun and shade? Here's the blend I would suggest, because I'm getting to the point where I'm almost going to be customizing these grass mixes for people mm -hmm. so they mm -hmm. get the right combination for their own situation. And are there people or companies that specialize in just lawns? Yeah, but a good gardening service should be able to take care of something like that, or a landscape gardener. So well, I've, yes, I've got the announcements today. Okay, go ahead. We're down a chair, so there wasn't a place to put it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, Dick KDRT is your community radio, where the grassroots grow. Whether you have comments about current programming, want to train to produce your own show, are interested in joining our volunteer support staff, or want more information on underwriting or donations, we want to hear from you. Drop us an email at info at kdrt.org with your ideas, concerns, interests, and contact information. And don't forget to put your contact information there. Thank you so much for keeping in touch with KDRT, where the grass roots grow, as we have just been talking about. Okay. And... <laughs> she stretches across. Well, area. that's because we hair down a chair. Um, the Davis Cemetery and Arboretum District. Arboretum? Did you know that? We have two Arboretums in Davis. We have the university's Arboretum, of course. And then the Davis Cemetery now has an Arboretum. With graves dating back to 1855, the Davis Cemetery is one of the community's oldest institutions. In addition to burial and remembrance services, the cemetery hosts a variety of community events, and it offers many opportunities for walking and jogging, art and history appreciation, and meditation. 
The cemetery arboretum comprises walking paths, benches, and labyrinths set among local flora and rotating blooms throughout the year. Also within the cemetery grounds is Gallery 1855, which hosts a new art exhibit each month and a Meet the Artist open house every second Sunday. The cemetery and arboretum district is located in East Davis on Poline Road at 8th Street. For more information, call 530-756-7807 or visit the website daviscemetery.org. The next question came by email to me and uh, seemed like a relevant topic for the show as well. It begins, I let my fruit trees go last winter, uh-huh. and the results are broken branches and a lot of fruit all over the ground. Ooh. Do I need to, well, yeah, that's, I, I, can, I can relate to this. <laughs> Do I need to wait until winter to clean all the broken parts up? What's the best strategy for managing these trees growing forward? They're about 15 years old. I'm going to suggest anyone listening in the month of August... In Sacramento Valley, anywhere in Lowland, California, and any other part of the country, just just apply it to your region as appropriate. Google um, Sacramento Extension Summer Pruning. Sacramento Extension Summer Pruning. Those are your Google search terms. There's a lot of other ways I could get you there. But it happens that for a long time, Chuck Ingalls, who was here in Davis but was a Sacramento Cooperative Extension uh, expert, was promoting and wrote articles on summer pruning of fruit trees. Mm -hmm. And uh, they just had harvest days out of the Fair Oaks Community Garden uh, just this last weekend. But so you can't, it's too late for you to go to where there's docents standing there and telling you about it. But you can go out there and look at all the different training and pruning techniques. And if you get to the website of that community garden, uh, excuse me, it's a public, the Cooperative Extension Managed Garden in Fair Oaks, you will see examples of fruit trees planted three in one hole, fruit trees trained as espaliers, fruit trees, high density planting, fruit trees with, with vase training, central leader training, modified central, all these different things that home gardeners can do to get more fruit out of a backyard, more different kinds of fruit out of a backyard. And one of the key ones is summer pruning. So if and they, that's become the standard now. It, well, I wish. I mean, uh, there's still a widespread belief that you can only prune things in the winter, and I would like to get away from that notion with both fruit trees and roses, for that matter. Um, uh, the pruning of the, the broken branches, yeah, cut that clean. Yeah. Clean that up. If suddenly a broken branch has exposed an interior branches to direct sun, you should probably whitewash that exposed portion. because with, it, with With the interior white latex thinned out 50-50 with water, or you can buy tree trunk paint. They actually make such a thing. The point there is to prevent sunburn because broken branches, in my opinion, more so than disease or anything, broken branches are the beginning of the end for your fruit trees. Mm. A branch that breaks on the, the bend of the curve, that's fine. You can harvest the fruit, cut it off clean. There's still enough foliage in the canopy to shade the interior of the tree. If you've been summer pruning, that's almost sure to be the case because mm-hmm. you've been pruning for density. If it's an old-fashioned training technique and a big old branch has split or broken in such a way that suddenly the interior opens up, sunlight on unexposed wood that is now exposed gets sunburned and uh, the wood gets sunburned borers get in that then that branch is infested and then it breaks and so forth i mean that's basically what starts the process of decline of -hmm. most fruit trees so cut those clean that's important also very important if any of your fruit trees are apricots or cherries we don't prune them at all in the winter because of disease problems because of the wet because of wet weather leading to infection through the pruning cuts so Mm -hmm. cherries and apricots are only pruned 
during the growing season when there won't be any rain for four to six weeks after the pruning is done. Which means so, not in Wisconsin where it rains every day. Yeah, I don't know how you do those there. But yeah. I, you know what? This, this <laughs> disease we're talking about, just for those of you listening outside the area, is a pretty Northern California thing to my knowledge. And you can look it up. There's, a, there's Utypa on apricots, E-U-T-Y-P-A. And then what they like to call bot rot on cherries, because that's short for botryosphyria, bot rot on cherries. Both of those get into fresh pruning cuts in the rainy season here. I doubt if you're pruning in January in Wisconsin. So, uh, no. <laughs> so my guess is that I don't even know if you grow apricots. So honestly, you should check locally about any of these particular disease issues. But summer pruning, and the reason I bring this up now is that Lois can go home and do this right now on her plum. Lois has to because here's a broken branch and I haven't yeah. gotten it out yet. Well, summer pruning is incredibly convenient. Um, mm-hmm. Dave Wilson Nursery has some excellent videos on it. If you're a YouTube kind of person, they have them there. Uh, there's also all the information that mentioned summer pruning uh, through the Sacramento Cooperative Extension. Summer pruning, as they say on their website, and I love this, is recommended to control tree size and because it is a convenient, pleasant time to prune. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather be out there and it's at 80 degrees in this August week. rather than in yeah. January? So a uh, uh, main point that, that uh, Dave Wilson Nursery's main salesman for years would make is he went around tirelessly promoting summer pruning. That was Ed Livo. Uh, he would say that people come into nurseries looking for dwarfing rootstocks so they won't have to prune. I want a semi-dwarf tree so I won't have to prune it. And he would take out two pieces of PVC, uh, and he would put them together and hold them up so they were 15 feet plus standing in whatever, wherever he was giving the talk. He'd go, is that semi-dwarf? And everyone shakes their head. He goes, that's how big they get. The rootstock does not keep them as small as people think is the way they put it there. You control the size of the tree. And yes, the only way to keep the trees, most fruit trees, under about 12 feet tall is by pruning. And the most practical way to do it is in the summer. And it doesn't require any great expertise. Mm-hmm. You choose the size and you don't let the tree get any bigger. And, it's just, and if anything's going straight up above that height, you just cut it off. And the, a very good time to do that. You can do some pruning in the, with a new flush of growth in the spring. You can go out there. It's okay. It's okay to clip branches in the spring. That's fine. It's not a problem. If they're shooting up pasture and you're going to want them, just trim those off. It'll be easy to do with handheld clippers at that mm-hmm. stage. Or what I do is I let them go through everything, unless they're crowding a path or something. And I wait until I'm done with the harvest. And then after everything is all harvested, we go out. And this is something where I have more than once handed loppers. I've got several sets of them. I clean them up. I sharpen them. I hand them to my son and his friends. I say, go ahead. Whatever you can reach. You're all six feet tall. Just reach up and cut off whatever you can reach on all of these trees in this area. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it. You're turning them into hedges. Or as Chuck Ingalls used to like to say, fruit bushes. Fruit bushes. Fruit I bushes. Like and I have, there are good, single trunk. The reason I recommend you can you do that, uh, that Google search is you'll find pictures of what a plum or a pluot looks like after you're done. Uh, so I consider eight feet about my goal. Uh, they tell you you can prune after the spring flush of growth, cut the new growth back by half, or in late summer, which is late August to mid-September, you can cut all of the new growth that occurred that summer back by half or more. If you know where it fruits, that's, imp- that's useful, but it, in most cases, it's not that crucial. You're just essentially cutting it down to keep it a certain height. All of my trees that are less than five years old, started planting about five years ago, I'm keeping under 10 feet. Mm-hmm. A couple of them right now, my green gauge plum is on a normal vigorous rootstock. It has shot up to 12 feet. I'm going to prune it back down to eight feet. I'm going to go down the road. It'll look like a hedge of fruit trees, even though they're all different varieties mm-hmm. on different rootstocks and, and different growth habits. But by the time we get done pruning them, they'll basically look like a long hedge of fruit trees. Then in the winter, I'll probably go in. Last winter, I probably made 
a dozen pruning cuts total, and we're talking about 30 trees here. Mm-hmm. I just went in rubbing branches, just crossing branches. to see branches. if there's a problem. Yeah, things, structural things that look like they might become an issue down the road. So that's where knowing what you're doing is actually helpful. But mm-hmm. the summer pruning is really more like uh, pruning like a hedge. And I like the final conclusion that this sounds like Ed Livo writing here. Don't let the pruning decisions inhibit you or slow you down. There are always multiple acceptable decisions. No two people will prune a tree exactly the same. You learn to prune by pruning. That's cool. Now, if there's anybody out there who's listening, who's in Davis, who wants to come out and hold the ladder for me or climb the ladder while I point at, at shoots that I want to come out, feel free to give me a call because thing, I think it's time I have to do that again. Well, the thing is, most of what we do, you shouldn't, uh, if you've done it from the start, you yeah, but see, I didn't. Right, you shouldn't even need a ladder. Now, I have a, I have a mix. I've been, I'm on my fourth cycle of tree planting on this property. Mm-hmm. And some of the ones that I planted in the first and second cycles have become large, mature trees. I have a pluot that's 15 by 15, mm-hmm. and a large branch broke because of the amount of fruit that was on it. There's going to be some chainsaw work on that one. So I'm going to leave that chainsaw work until January, mm-hmm. more than likely, because that's, that's kind of you hard. You can see better. I can see better what I'm doing. It'll be easier to clean it up then, yeah. So... so uh, it, that, this may be too difficult for this show. Maybe we need to do a different okay. uh, different time. But if my tree is like, you know, three feet taller than I want it to be, but I have been keeping it at that spot for a long time. Mm-hmm. So it has lots of growth right there yep. at, the, at, the, at the top canopy. Now, I know that I shouldn't take out things that are going to expose the inside to sun right. and burn stuff, but... If I were to do that in the winter when the sun isn't as bright, right, that's when you would the tree recover enough before spring to be okay? Yes. Yeah. Oh, if you're going to do major, you can you can bring many types of fruit trees down that have, you know, very old trees can be rejuvenated and the uh-huh. size can be controlled. If it's a very old cherry tree or something, I'm going to be concerned about that. You don't want to do it in the winter because of the disease problem. They don't heal that well. Yeah. Probably your best bet is to just remove the tree and put in a new one and manage right. it properly. But you're talking about a plum. I'm talking plums, about a plum. Plums are pretty f- indestructible. Yeah, that's what I found. <laughs> so, and they still fruit a lot. In fact, one of the re- resources pounds. one of the resources I looked at years ago uh, basically described the pruning process on plum trees as increasingly hard pruning as the tree grows to reduce the fruit load because ultimately fruit plums can kind of fruit themselves to death. They can get to the point where there's so much fruit that they are falling apart. And also the fruit Breaking. size fruit size isn't great. So uh-huh. you're pruning for a couple different reasons. You're trying to reduce fruit load, control the size of the tree, and get bigger individual fruit. That goes for some of the pluots, too, as mm-hmm. I'm finding on some of the newer varieties I'm planting. You can do this. I recommend if you're reducing the size of an overgrown tree that it would be a two- to three-year process. Mm-hmm. Take out a couple strategic ones pretty hard, leaving some bro- growth to protect them. And then doing another couple next year if you possibly can. It's the kind of thing you almost have to look at in a case-by-case basis. And mm-hmm. that's where I suggest people take a picture of it in the winter. One of the big advantages in the winter, you can take a silhouette picture. I yeah. do this probably many dozens of times during the course of the winter. I don't know how to prune my fruit tree. All right. Go out on a nice foggy day is great. Take a picture so that you just show the whole silhouette of the tree. Bring it in on your laptop is even better or print it out. If you want to print it out, I'll take a Sharpie and make some lines of where I would prune it and show you how I would do it. Because that one big advantage of the winter is that you can see the structure and what you're actually dealing with. A lot of this is much easier if you've trained the tree from an early age rather than, you know, trying to recover something that's gotten overgrown. Okay, so ten t- the top ten things I find myself saying to customers at this time of the year. Probably this a is good way to wind up the show. Late July and early August. Yep. Watermark deeply. 
perhaps mm. less often. That's number one. Yeah, okay. definitely number one. Water more deeply. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're already being controlled by na- they. The problem, the problem is already being controlled by natural predators. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That refers most commonly to aphids. Mm-hmm. Sometimes cottony cushions scale. I can almost always show them how they're being controlled by natural beneficial insects right as we speak. All okay. right. Um, no, this isn't unusually hot. A lot of new folks to Davis going, is it always like this? Um, It's fine to plant now, so long as you can water properly while it's getting established. Okay, check daily. Water is needed probably every other day at first. No, those aren't hardy here. That's a common one. Define hardy? Uh, Something that won't be killed in the winter. Okay, won't be killed by cold. Yeah, tropical. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, hardiness officially refers just to cold tolerance. The flower color is affected by temperature. What do you think think I might be referring (laughs) to there? Yes, I heard that one a lot. Um, Oh, I love this solution to a problem. Ah, Just try blasting them off with water first. Yep. Yep. Free, cheap, and easy. Okay. And then this answer, guess what the question is? The answer is, about two inches of water a week, set out some tuna cans to measure how much you're putting on. Well, we've been saying that one for decades. That's for your lawn needs about, just about two inches of water a week Mm -hmm. total, yeah. And this one, I think, is probably the most common one. Try running at longer. (laughs) It's right up there with number one. What was number one? (laughs) Water more deeply, perhaps. It's it's another version of number one. (laughs) And then the last one is, oh, that was caused by the weather. (laughs) We always fall back on that one. Many, I will say this, that um, in go- looking back, when I make notes over a long period of time about the pests and disease problems and symptoms we're looking at at our nursery day in, day out, uh, the majority of them are just weather-related phenomena that are pretty much cosmetic. You know, why did the leaves on my young citrus burn? And I think I was watering it enough, and we find out they really weren't. We had a heat wave. And here's a simple question. Is most of the leaf burn on the south or southwest side of the plant? Then that's sunburn. And the plant was simply responding to a spike of high temperatures and wasn't getting quite enough water. So what's coming up on Lois's show today? Well, I had a, an author planned. The, the guest had to cancel. I called around, and my friend John Natsoulis is going to come and talk about art in Davis. Oh, he's been yeah. in an art gallery here for quite a he, while. He has, and he's been very active in getting public art. So that's what we're doing. So Lois runs a show here on uh, called That's Life, which is on right after the Davis Garden Show on Thursdays from 1 to 2 p.m., and it rebroadcasts. Um, this time Sunday at 2, I think. Sunday at 2. It changed. The rebroadcast changed. You can always go to the KDRT website and find all our schedules and when everything is showing. So that's Life, which is generally an interview show these days. It's been mm-hmm. on the air for quite a while, but uh, last year or so, you've been, you've, been, you've been morphing over towards more interviews and more current events and topics Yeah, that's like about that. four years old yeah. now. <laughs> I, have, I have another show on Catered, which is Jazz After Dark. That runs Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. It's a mellow jazz show that uh, I do jazz mostly from the 40s and 50s, but I'll stretch down into the 20s and 30s and all the way up to contemporary artists if it's fun to listen to. That runs Tuesdays, 8 p.m. and rebroadcast tour. Three three nights, three nights a week. You can find oh the goodness. program for any of the shows here at Catered at catered.org. Click on the schedule tab. Look at all the other amazing, something like three lots dozen of, other shows locally produced things, every yeah. week here at KDRT, where the grassroots grow. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California. Mm-hmm.